to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. I have a wonderful guest for you on today's podcast. It's my friend, Megan Goats. Welcome to the podcast, Megan. Thanks, Richard. We're going to talk about Megan's um, a mother, active LDS of four sons, and three of those sons have development challenges. I'm not even sure I'm using the right vocabulary on the autism, autistic scale and other challenges. So um, Megan has four sons and she's been walking the road with three of her sons just with complicated family issues and has learned a lot as she's been walking this road and bravely is willing to share this story for our listeners to help others that have children with some of these same type of um, things going on in their lives or those of us that want to better support and understand and help families that have children um, with these kinds of things going in their lives. Uh, Megan is um, has an undergraduate degree from Westminster here in Salt Lake City and a graduate degree from Utah, Utah State University, a master's in teaching of writing and is um, teaches at, universe, at UVU in Utah County, a writing class, is that right? How many classes do you teach? Well, I've taught as many as three sections per semester. Right now I'm just doing one. And thanks for your... Uh, thanks for doing that. That's always been a challenge for me writing. Um, as my family knows, I have some skills and some weaknesses, and that's been one of the challenging parts of my personal skill set. So I'm grateful for teachers like you in my life and and people that have a really good skill. Um, thanks for being on the podcast. Um, just share with us why you wanted to be on the podcast. What's kind of as an overview before we get in the details, just share your thoughts and why you wanted to be on the podcast? Well, my family has, we are unusual. We're unique. Good. We have some challenges, but also some amazing opportunities and gifts. I have, like you said, four sons, three are on the autism spectrum to varying degrees. And it's been really challenging raising them. They range, my oldest is 18. My youngest is eight. My oldest typically developing, does not have autism. Um, but we've just faced some unique challenges that I thought would be maybe helpful to talk about for listeners, particularly if they want to understand families that face challenges with disability, maybe in their, in their own extended family or in their ward families, um, and maybe also leaders as well. Just how can they reach out and all of us as, as ministers or ministering brothers and sisters in our ward, how can we reach out and better understand people around us who are facing these challenges that we maybe haven't faced in our own lives? That's great. What a great reason to be on the podcast. You've been walking this road for a long time. Your second oldest son, Jack, is 15. So it's not like you just started this road. And this is a decade plus with three sons with all probably different journeys within this broader journey. So your perspective will be very helpful for our listeners. Talk, let's just, we've kind of, for our listeners, we want to do four segments in this roughly hour podcast. So I'll give you a little bit of an overview. We'll talk about just family challenges. Um, the second section, we'll talk about it, um, the decision at the, at the goat's home to have Jack go into a group home. That's their second oldest son. And third part of this podcast will be spiritual gifts, um, both uh, in ourselves and their children. And then we'll conclude with how we can better serve families 
with children with disabilities. And so that's a bit of an overview, but let's start with family challenges. Okay. Gosh, I don't know where to start. Um, We had just a lot of hard times. My three boys who are on the spectrum have differing levels of abilities. Jack is nonverbal. He mostly doesn't speak. He's very limited cognitively. Um, And there was a time in his life when he became pretty violent, kind of aggressive in various ways. Um, Mainly, you know, out of frustration, he couldn't communicate his needs, his wants. Um, So we were kind of managing these really aggressive behaviors in a growing boy who was, you know, getting really big and strong. And then we were also facing um, our two younger boys who were diagnosed at very different times. Um, People have asked me before, kind of in a roundabout way, why we continued having children after Jack, and I'll just answer it. Um, We did because God told us to. Our family wasn't complete, and we just went into it with faith. We actually didn't know our third son was on the spectrum or our fourth son until everyone had been born at that point. So those diagnoses came later. Um, those two younger boys are both a lot higher functioning than Jack. They are verbal. They are social. Um, they're able to go to school and have friends and go to church. But we did face a lot of challenges, not only with our home life, but with church as well. Um I guess I could talk about that right now. Yeah, let me ask you a question. How old was Jack when you recognized that he wasn't developing normally? Well, right at birth, he had kind of this really profound, almost birthmark over much of his body. That It was his capillary malformation. So we knew something was different. And at eight months, he was diagnosed with his syndrome, which is macrocephaly capillary malformation syndrome. And not, I don't even, I'm amazed that they, they even have a name for it. Like they know so little about it. It's just really rare, but it mainly affects like cognitive abilities. And he has some physical differences as well. Um, And then when he was a toddler, we started seeing some behavioral differences and he was about two and a half when we got the autism diagnosis. And are those two completely different things going on with your son, Jack, or are they interrelated at all? Well, I asked the geneticist that, and he gave me a very lengthy answer using lots of terminology (laughs) that said he felt that the autism in Jack was a function of the syndrome. Mm. So they were probably connected. Um, It is possible for families to have multiple kids on the autism spectrum, I don't know. I think it's maybe like 20% chance or I'm, I'm not exactly sure. So we knew that could be something that we faced with our younger children. But again, it was something that we were really prayerful, really mindful of. And, and we proceeded anyway. And frankly, I'm glad we did. <laughs> there are children. Yeah, there's an inference in that question that you get asked. And I like the way you just hit that right on, Megan, is that if you had known you were going to have you know, three out of four sons on the autism spectrum, would you have stopped having kids after one? I don't know. Honestly, I think at this point in time, no, because I love them. They're my children and I'm glad they're here. I don't, I don't think you regret children that you have. Um, but I think maybe if I hadn't known going into it, I, I don't know. It's an honest answer. And I, yeah. 
I love that, you know, this idea that they're all your children. And I think we have these expectations when we start having kids that we'll have, you know, kids, I like this term you use for your oldest son, typical, typically developing, and we'll have typically developing children. And then if we don't, we're sort of like that, that we don't, that's sort of a curveball and have multiple of those. But I like the feeling you're communicating that this is our family and this is how it was meant to be. And even though it's really difficult and you're going to talk about that in some ways, you wouldn't change that. Right. So I don't think you're being irresponsible as a parent to have three children on the spectrum. I don't think Heavenly Father just wants us to have typically developing children um, and only have typically developing children on earth because I think that's part of the earth experience. Well, I agree. I mean, we all have challenges. Some are just maybe more visible than others. I could have a child, you know, who suffers from a drug addiction or any number of other challenges. And is that any reason to not give them the opportunity of life? Talk more about this family challenge. Um, to, you know, when we visited ahead of time. I wrote down some notes about, you know, what is your relationship with God during this time? Is it harder? Is it easier? Just anything else you want to share in this first segment about family challenges? Sure. So that was a very difficult time for me when my children were little. I had this image of God in my mind that he was just kind of shaking his head and looking at me with disappointment, just thinking, you know, she just cannot figure this out. <laughs> she she just can't do it. And I don't know where I came up with that concept, but I thought he's not helping me because he's disappointed in me. And there was even a time in my life when I didn't want to pray. I knew he was there and I knew that at kind of a fundamental level, he loved me, but I thought he was waiting for me to figure it out. And I needed to become a better mother, whatever that means, and figure it out. And it wasn't until I went through, I call it my non-ironic spiritual journey because it was just real. It was legit. I want our listeners to hear that again, our, my non-ironic, ironic spiritual journey. Well, sometimes people use, we overuse that phrase, spiritual journey, but mine was legit. It happened. And it was a process for me of therapy. I went to therapy. I also um, started to become really aware of my dreams and dreams are actually one of the main ways that the spirit speaks to me. Don't ask me why. I, I can't explain that. Maybe it's just I'm still enough at that point to listen. But through these dreams, I vividly saw that my heavenly father was there and that he knew, he understood, and he'd given me all the tools I needed to succeed. He wasn't waiting for me to figure it out. He was kind of just right there with me. And through that process, it was really a process of me being humbled. I, I didn't realize it, but I was prideful before that. I didn't think pride was my problem, which it's all our problem. It's the universal sin. I didn't think it was my problem because I was failing so spectacularly as a parent until I realized that I was prideful in thinking that God wasn't going to help me who am I to tell God what he can do and what miracles he can achieve? Um, and once I opened myself up 
you know, through these spiritual dreams I had and, and through just having an open mind and heart and recognizing that my heavenly parents were there and that they were helping me, um, then I could see, okay, now what do you want me to do going forward? And that is when revelation just began to flow in my life. And I, I received really clear answers on how to help my children and how to help myself, what I needed to do in order to help them in their really unique challenges. I like that. And I just want to understand sometimes less follow-up questions. It sounds like in the beginning of this phase, you were not reaching out to God because you felt like you were failing as a mother. You felt like you didn't have all the answers and you felt like you were not measuring up. So it was harder to reach out to God because you felt like you needed to sort of measure up before you could feel confident reaching out to him so he could help you right? versus just knowing he'll accept you right where you are and that you don't need to be a better person or have everything figured out as a parent of four kids before he'll help you. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I think I thought I had to be more of the image of kind of the cover of an ensign family like we had and to look right and act right. And we were not that. We did not, we didn't look right. Our family home evenings were like sometimes 90 seconds long and very <laughs> raucous. And yet we sang, I am a child of God at every single one. And we talked about Jesus and we had a prayer. Sometimes there were vacuums involved with my son, Jack, who loves vacuums. But we were trying and I just didn't feel like we fit the mold. And there was a lot of pain in that for me. Um, not that we all need to fit the mold, but I felt that I was doing it wrong. And that's why I was struggling so much. So it was good for me to kind of overcome that image that. Were Sundays hard just sitting on the bench? And when you say the pain of not fitting the mold, sometimes that's more acute on a Sunday where your your bench experience doesn't look like anybody else's bench experience. <laughs> Absolutely. I always said Sundays were the hardest day of the week and sacrament meeting was the hardest hour of the whole week. Um, some, one, of, one of Jack's teachers told me when I shared this challenge with her, she said, sacrament meeting is just wildly developmentally inappropriate for some children, but yet we keep trying to do it. We just tried. So we had most years or most weeks rather when we had to take him out at some point, he was very loud. He had a hard time sitting. And then as we added the two other boys, younger boys to the family, it just became more and more chaotic. Um, (laughs) There were times when my husband would have taken out one of the kids and I would have taken out another and our oldest Henry would be left like with the baby. (laughs) And he wasn't very old at the time, maybe 10. And I would think, what are we even doing here? Why are we here? But we still wanted to go. There were times when we even toyed with, well, maybe we'll just come after sacrament meeting. Maybe we'll just try, you know, primary in the other hours And we felt that that wasn't right. You know, the sacraments, this important ordinance. And one thing I did see was when we made the effort, when we really tried to go to sacrament meeting, we didn't last, but I, I almost always had a spiritual experience for the amount of time that we were able to stay. Even if it was 
Sometimes it was only the opening song, but I, I felt the spirit and we tried to stay through the sacrament, the ordinance of the sacrament. And then inevitably one of us would have to leave with whatever combination of children (laughs) to take home. But I felt like through that God understood that we were really trying and he knew how they knew how hard it was and they understood and they gave they gave me that spiritual nourishment that I needed at that time in that way. If I were in your ward and didn't have a lot of little kids, or or I did, what what could I have said or not said that would have made your Sunday sacrament experience better? That's a good question. I think that people who addressed Jack, like as a ward member, they called him by name. Hi, Jack. I think that that meant a lot to me. They saw him there. They knew that he had challenges. They didn't expect the same of him as maybe they expected of one of his peers the same age. Um, Just kind of an understanding that like, it's not going to be the same sacrament experience for everyone. And I think most people did understand that we had to frequently take him home. Um, We did at one point have a young woman in our ward who was actually doing behavior therapy for Jack. And she, she saw our struggle and she approached us and said, let me take Jack on a walk every Sunday after the sacrament, but during the remainder of sacrament meeting. And we said, well, no, you need to be hearing those talks and listening. And she said, I'm good. I just need to sit through the sacrament. And then I'd really like to help Jack. That's what I want to do. And she did that for, I don't even know how long, maybe six or nine months. She would just walk over and grab him after the sacrament and they would take big, long walks around the building. And there's a park across the street from our church. And when I look back on that, I think, what a gift that was. She knew him and she knew us. And that was the most meaningful thing that she could do. And I just remain grateful to her for seeing that and for doing it. What's her first name? Kirsty. That kind of brought tears to my eyes. In fact, it did. And I just thought, the Heavenly Father, that I love whatever she missed during those talks. I'd make up to her for taking care of one of my children, Jack, and making that whole Sunday experience a little bit easier for you. What a ministering home run. We all could do something like that. That's the other thing that's the simplicity of that is not to say that becomes the norm, but what a thoughtful thing to do and just sort of someone that has a spiritual impression to think outside the box. That's a wonderful story. A couple of other examples that I came to mind of people at church, and they were they were simple things, but um, once we had a primary president who she knew that Jack didn't like wearing church clothes. They were just, you know, uncomfortable. And I told her, well, he's, yes, he's wearing sweats, but he's here. And she said, I think we should all wear sweats one Sunday a month in solidarity with Jack. And I just appreciated the fact that she made us feel like we belonged and that she would do whatever it took for Jack to come to church. Um, There were also a few years where when Jack was older than nursery age, that he attended nursery instead of primary. He had a hard time in sharing time and in class, 
but he liked nursery. It was the right developmental level for him. He liked the toys and the snacks and the bubble machine. And so we had this nursery leader who just accepted him. He was this big, tall, you know, redhead, redhead kid in with the little toddlers. And she just loved him. She would talk to me about Jack all the time and say that she appreciated having him there and that he added to the spirit of, of the nursery. Inevitably, that that didn't work. He couldn't stay forever. He ended up, you know, starting to get aggressive. And, and so we couldn't do that anymore. But every time I see her, we're not even in the same ward anymore. Our wards split. She always tells me how much she loves Jack. And I can't think of her without weeping. Like, I'm just grateful for her for seeing him, uh, for for who he is, not for his disabilities. Love that story. I just, I hope I would be a parent, especially if I were a little older and didn't have kids, that you would get a feeling from my wife, and I certainly get it from my wife, that we're just not bothered by your noisy family. We're just not going to look over our shoulder and kind of give you a look that just makes it harder for you and somehow do things to just help you know that we understand and that we're not bothered and we're with you. And whether that's sit with your kids or I love what this one person did by getting to know Jack and asking about Jack. And, I, you know, there's not a perfect formula to do that, but I think that would be something I hope all of we can do is not be bothered by a family that isn't fit the typical mode and may make our Sunday experience a little less what we had originally hoped it would be, but maybe that's what we needed to grow and to serve others. Yeah, absolutely. There were a few Sundays as Jack got bigger that, um, well, I guess I should backtrack. Um, at one point when he was aggressive, we knew that he couldn't come to church anymore. It was too triggering for him and, and dangerous. And frankly, he didn't, he didn't need it. He didn't need to be there. He has a very, very perfect and valiant soul. And so we had to then get sitters for him while we went to church, or we had to take turns going and being home with him. Um, but there were a couple of Sundays when he was able to come with a behavior therapist. We had for a time this amazing behavior therapist named Junior, who was this big Samoan guy who's like, He's like my other son, even though I'm not old enough to be his mother, but he was such a gift to us. And he would come because he could manage Jack and Jack was very good for him. And I just remembered the last time Jack ever attended church with us. So I had my whole family there. It was a, it was a Christmas, like right before Christmas. And um, Jack just had laid his head on Junior's shoulder and was just kind of quietly listening. And there was a musical number somebody was playing the piano and I, I think maybe a cello. And at the very end in the stillness, Jack applauded <laughs> in the that. chapel. And so many people told me later that, that, that warmed their heart. They That's were great. glad that he was there. And I actually kind of treasure that Sunday that we were all able to be together at church. What a treasure. And I love that he applauded. That just gives us all an insight that Jack's good heart. Yeah. Anything more about family challenges and reconnecting with God and learning to trust God before we talk, move into this other second segment about the decision to move Jack into a group home? No, I think we could. Okay, let's keep talk going. about that decision. Okay, so I've mentioned that Jack started getting more aggressive. His needs became really intense and he was getting bigger. 
and it was hard to manage him. Um, I'll just tell a couple of experiences that really helped to know that this was the way we needed to proceed. Um, so school breaks were always hard because he didn't have the structured routine of school and we didn't have any help. Um, well, sometimes we had respite care, but it was spotty. So uh, it was before Christmas, a different year. We were, I had driven him to McDonald's to buy fries. You know, we were just trying to keep him busy. And it was a really long wait. Like he didn't understand the wait. And then they asked me to pull forward because the fries weren't ready. And he did not understand why I was leaving uh -oh. without fries. And, and he started just attacking me. It was actually a really terrifying experience. I, he climbed into the front seat and was hitting me. And my younger son, Charlie, was terrified and said, call the police, mom. And I thought I would do that if I was not deflecting blows <laughs> from my son. And it was, it was terrifying. People were driving past, staring at us. I don't know, they, thinking we were just out of control. And he, Jack, they brought the fries. He eventually calmed down a little, and I thought, we've got to get home. Like, this is dangerous. We pulled out on into a, a really a big intersection, and he he kicked the gear shift into reverse. Oh, my gosh. And, I, like, I really saw my life flash before my eyes. I thought, this is it. Like, we're all going to die at this moment. For whatever reason, at that moment, there was no traffic in the this very, very busy intersection. And I screamed a prayer. I have never done that before, but I said, God, help me. And at that moment, Jack stopped attacking me and started to cry and was calm so I put the car in gear and I pulled off onto this little side road and I called my husband who was actually not very far away. He was driving around from work and was only a few minutes away. He said, I'll be right there. And as I'm sitting there and Jack is docile at this point, just kind of making happy sounds, I thought, what is left for us? Like, what? I can't take you anywhere. I can't manage you. We almost just died your younger brothers could have died. And the spirit just said to me, uh, look into group homes. And I don't know why I argue with the spirit, but sometimes I do. And I, I said, well, that will mean I failed my son. Like I'm his mother. I'm supposed to raise him and take care of him. And the response was, it will be all right. This is part of Jack's journey. And so I had this sense that okay, this is something I need to consider. It's what he needs. I did look into group homes. He was still pretty young at that point, probably 11, 10 or 11. And most don't take kids that age. Typically it's like when they become adults at age 18. And we just thought, I thought, why? Why was I supposed to look into this if it's not really something that's going to happen for a long time? And so we just carried on with our lives, trying to manage everybody. Um, we had a second car experience. It, it was about four months later when he attacked, well, he was actually attacking his younger brother at the time. So I pulled off and he got in the front and started hitting me. And once again, I was just terrified for my life, for my kids' lives. I, um, 
called my husband. Jack knocked the phone out of my hand. Again, I yelled a prayer as he was hitting me. And just within seconds, uh, flashing lights pulled up behind us. And it was an unmarked police car. Um, A police detective got out. So he was in plain clothes. And he came around the passenger side of the car and, and walked around the front. And I could see as he saw Jack hitting me, his eyes just got really big. And, and he came over to the driver's side and I, I opened the door and I can still remember he just had his hands out reaching. And he said, I, well, I, I, I talked to him first. I said, this is my son and he has autism and he's hurting me. Cause I didn't, I didn't want him to hurt Jack. You know, I wanted him to understand. And he just held his hands out and said, what should I do? And I was so grateful for that because if you don't understand someone with disabilities, you know, he could have gotten out a taser or escalated the situation and made it really bad. And he just asked, what should I do? And I said, if you can just wait with us until my husband can get here, we will be okay, but it'll take him 20 minutes. And he said, I can wait. So at this point, Jack had climbed in the back of our minivan and I followed him so that he wouldn't hurt Charlie. And this, this detective who he actually kind of looked like Thor, but he had short hair and not long hair. He just sat in the driver's seat, but turned around. So he was facing me and, and we just had this long, awkward 20 minutes of, of just waiting. And Jack was annoyed, but okay. And it was during rush hour traffic. So it was just really chaotic and, and busy. And my husband came and he took Jack. Jack never was aggressive with him in the car. It's just how he was. And I just said to that detective, I don't know where you were going tonight or if you needed to be somewhere, but thank you for stopping and thank you for sitting with me. And he was just so good. He was just the the angel we needed at that moment. And I was grateful for that. But after those two really terrifying experiences, I couldn't ever drive alone in the car with Jack ever again, which is really complicated. If you think about always having to bring another adult with you when you drive your child somewhere, it just made our lives really complex. Um, It was just hard. (laughs) Everything was difficult. We couldn't go a lot of places with him. He still had to go to the doctor and other places and we struggled, but I was also kind of dealing with this concept of what is next for Jack. And he is getting more aggressive and hurting people. And how are we going to proceed? And I started to, as I went through my unironic spiritual journey, I started just receiving revelation, often in the form of dreams, that Jack had a different kind of mission and it wasn't going to be with with us in our home. At this point, he was only 12 years old. And so that did not feel like what I wanted. Um, So one of the dreams I had was that I was looking at our, our lot, like where our house was, but there wasn't a house on it. It was a giant swimming pool. And in the shallow end of this enormous swimming pool, there was a massive sailboat and it took up the whole shallow end of the pool. It was just kind of Um, moored there with a little rope. And it looked so out of place. It was so big. 
And, and then the dream kind of shifted and I was swimming in the deep end and I had pushed off the bottom and I was swimming up toward the surface and I could see the clouds above the water. And, and I thought to myself, oh, this, this is deeper than I thought because I wasn't breaking the surface. I just kept, I just kept going. And finally at the, and my lungs were burning. And then just as I woke up, that's when I broke the surface of the water and so I'm telling my husband about this dream. And I, I said, I can't even figure out what it means. I know it means something. It was so crystal clear and powerful. And he said, he looked at me like I was crazy. And he said, the boat is Jack. And the message of the dream is hold on. And as soon as he said it, I, I felt that confirmation that that was right. And then I had a second dream that kind of... I think of it as lay, overlaying two transparencies with each other. And when I laid them together, it made more sense. In, so in this other dream, I was by a beach with my other three children. And we were trying to walk to the beach. We were on these paths. And we could see other families on the beach, but we just couldn't get there. Every At every turn, there was some obstacle and we could not make it. And I felt frustrated. And then at one point I looked out at the ocean and there was that sailboat and it had the sails up and they were billowing in the wind and it was beautiful. There was sunlight glinting off of the water. And I felt that Heavenly Father was telling me, Jack has a big life and it's beautiful and he has a purpose and he can't do that stuck in the shallow end here. He has to go. And it, it just gave me the courage to move forward. And we were able to get him approved for um, residential care. It was terrifying. I worried about a lot of things. And it was really the moment in my life when I had to turn it over to God and put it all on the altar and say, you gave us Jack. He's your son too. Please help us know how to proceed to keep him safe. Well, I'm really touched by that segment, Megan. Um, I don't cry usually very much in the podcast, but somehow that policeman's story just brought tears to my eyes. And, you know, sometimes police people in certain professions get stigmatized as callous or not caring or cold-hearted, but there's a lot of good law enforcement people that want to do the right thing and do do the right thing. And I, I would just hope, I love the way he assessed the situation. And you're right, you would be nervous about um, applying force, which would be a normal intuition or gut reaction when you're under attack. But, but his open-ended question with his arms out and then sitting in the car with you for 20 minutes I don't know who you are out there, but, you know, that's really cool. I hope we could all do that same thing. I love this honesty that you feel like at first I failed. If I send him to a group home, I failed and I'm, and I'm punting and I'm, I'm not taking my responsibility as a parent real because we sort of talk about keeping kids with challenges in our homes and that might you might even feel judgment in our church culture or family or extended family for taking the quote easy road or punting is the other term. And 
I just recognize the personal revelation you're receiving, and you're doing this out of love. You're not doing this out of anything else. You want to do what's right for Jack, and that personal revelation you've received through those dreams is so real and so right. And I just admire you having the courage. I think it takes real courage because you love this boy and you want him to be in your home. You can't imagine a 12-year-old boy leaving your home but recognizing the big picture of what's going on here and having the courage to follow your personal revelation. So I hope that if you were in my ward or in my family or in my circle of friends, I would not sort of pass any judgment on you because there's no way I can know the road you walk and the revelation you're receiving. And I hope I would just, just, you would feel my support. I love also the way we receive personal revelation very different. Sometimes I think when we go to testimony meeting and we hear people receiving personal revelation, which is faith building, we assume that that's the way it's going to work for us. And the older I get, the know I know I have a formula to receive personal revelation that's different than my wife. And I think that's great. And I love the role of dreams. And I love the way your husband helped you on that dream. Yeah, I do and too. So anything more on that part, the decision to put Jack into a group home before we move on? No, I think that's covered that part. Um, the next section is just spiritual gifts, your own spiritual gifts and that have come to this experience and spiritual gifts that have come into the lives of your children and maybe your husband too. Yeah. So I think they're connected with, like you said, personal revelation. We receive them differently. We're given different spiritual gifts. You know, the scriptures lay out really a number of different types of spiritual gifts that we can have. But then they also do that kind of legal disclaimer of like, these aren't even all of them. There's more. So I think that our heavenly parents know us so well, and they we just come to earth endowed with these gifts, and they're different. They're unique to us. And they're, they're to help both us and the people around us. They're for everyone's good to help us return back home to them. So after Jack left and I was grieving that he was not with us. He wasn't under the same roof. We didn't get to see the sweet parts of Jack every day. Uh, over a period of time, I, I started to ask to understand Jack better. And it seems to be that that's the other key of spiritual gifts. We have to ask to understand them. We have to ask to know what they are. Sometimes we can know what they are from our patriarchal blessing, um, but sometimes I think sometimes there's just this piece that we have to ask to know how to use them. And when I asked, I got answers and I started to understand Jack as a really valiant, courageous, faithful person. And I knew that he had, he has probably more spiritual gifts than I fully understand right now, but one of his biggest gifts is faith. And I'll just tell you a couple of examples, if that's okay. So one of my dear friends who also has a daughter with disabilities, call, I've had other people who have had dreams about me and they call and tell me. And cool. honestly, I think it's just because they can, they're just aware and they're, and I think that's beautiful. <laughs> so I had this friend call, you know, she texted me early one 
Saturday and said, I don't have dreams. I don't remember my dreams. But last night I had three dreams in succession about Jack. And I remember everything about them. And so she told me these dreams and it felt powerful to me. And in one of the dreams, she said it was like the beginning of Forrest Gump, where the camera is following this feather, you know, that's blowing, except it was a soccer ball. And she could see the soccer ball and people were hitting it or kicking it down a street. And then it stopped in a courtyard and she could see these big feet. (laughs) Jack has big feet. And, and he bent over with his red curls and she could see that. And he picked up the soccer ball. And so she told me this dream and I felt that there was a lot of significance in him picking up the ball. And the spirit witnessed to me that Jack chose his life and that it wasn't a burden to him. He wanted it. He agreed to have this limited life and that he came with the spiritual gift of faith so that he, as a special, disabled, you know, limited person, could point other people to the Savior because that's his salvation. So then I had another dream where I was standing at the edge of a canyon. I was looking over this cliff and it was, everything was brown, dirt, and there were switchbacks, like a trail coming up the canyon. And I, all I could think was, gosh, that's brown and dirty. And then as I looked closer, I saw that there was a, a border of tulips along all of the switchbacks. And I thought, wow, somebody went to a lot of trouble, you know, to plant those bulbs. And really, it makes it really pretty. So I had that dream. And then I didn't think a lot of it. And I went to church, which was Easter Sunday. And I took the sacrament. And Richard, one of the times that I feel the closest to my son is Sundays when we take the sacrament. I feel closer to him then than I do when I'm at his group home visiting him. I feel like our spirits are communing. So I was taking the sacrament and I I suddenly thought about my dream and I was just thinking it over. Yes, switchbacks, tulips. And I had the witness that I was seeing Jack's testimony of the Savior, that this was his salvation. And it it was where he wanted me to look to, that our Savior is the way out of that canyon, that he's both the trail up the canyon wall, and he's also the beautiful tulips that are leading us there and giving us beauty in the hardship. And I felt this, that Jack is so wise. I felt so grateful for that. And I thought his whole life's mission like that big, beautiful sailboat that I saw is to show us our savior and to show us that that's our way home. I think of our doctrine of eternal families that I think start in the preexistence. And then when I think of what you just shared with us, I think of Jack seeing a big picture of what's best for your eternal family and recognizing that I'm choosing this, that soccer ball story, and knowing the big picture of even though this will be difficult, that the the spiritual gifts and connecting with the Savior will, the aggregate experience will be a blessing to everybody. I feel that way. I feel grateful to him. People have often said to me, oh, you must have been you must have chosen Jack in, you know, before this earth. And I thought, I don't even know if I was smart enough to do that. <laughs> I think 
he, he chose me. I think he said, I can make this work with her. God, I think he's, he's got limitless faith. He didn't need to come and be tested. He just needed to come and have the mortal experience. And I'm just grateful that we get to be a part of it. It helps me when I see somebody that maybe I'm would pull away from in a public situation on public transportation and just situations where I don't want to, you know, and I just, sometimes it does cause me to pause and go, is that one of Heavenly Father's most valiant pre-mortal spirits? And I am just seeing that person through my limited mortal eyes with their limited, with some of their weaknesses that are easy to see. Weaknesses maybe not even being the right word. So that's one of the things I love about our plan of salvation is called the 40,000 foot level. Um, We're in the middle of a three act play and we don't understand the first act right now very well that you get insights into it with the dreams you've received. It gives us context and gives us hope. Yeah, absolutely. It does more, more in this section, spiritual gifts. Um, yeah. So I've, it comes back to another dream for me, of course. Um, I wanted to share a story of a difficult time. This was before Jack left, actually, that relates to me serving in the church and how um, a dream and my spiritual gifts helped me through this challenge. So I was called to do a a calling. I'm just going to be kind of intentionally vague, but I was called to do a calling that I really couldn't do. Like I actually couldn't do it with the challenges of my children and my husband's work schedule. And, and I communicated that, but I kind of just got, but if you try hard enough, it'll work. And I didn't really have the vocabulary to self-advocate at that point to just say, no, I can't. I, I still have a testimony. I can't do it though. And so I proceeded in this calling and it was going very badly as I thought it would. And so I had kind of reached out and said it wasn't working and I just wasn't getting released. And I felt so much frustration through all of this. Like, I can't do this calling. I'm disappointing my heavenly parents. They're not listening. You know, people around me, they don't understand. I'm not being heard. And I had a dream that I was at a, a music recital for kids. It was just at someone's house. And one of my neighbors just, and I was feeling a lot of frustration and angst about everything as I was sitting there listening. And one of my neighbors was next to me and she just leaned over and put her hand on my knee and said, you don't need to worry about the challenges that you have with your children and how other people don't understand them because you're doing a good job. And I was just suddenly flooded with peace, like a kind of peace that I had not experienced for years, like before having all of these children with disabilities. And I knew that it wasn't my neighbor speaking. She was a mouthpiece for my heavenly parents. And I, I knew that they saw, they saw that I was at capacity and they saw my faithfulness and my faith and they, they were fine. They loved me. It was okay. And it was like, they were saying, don't worry about the calling and all of the, the issues with that. And through that experience, I call it going to the source. Sometimes I think we want to look to another person, you know, maybe in our ward, or we want to look to a leader and we want them to provide all the answers for us. 
And in this case, that, that wasn't how it worked. It came directly from the source. And it was okay that there wasn't a full understanding from people around me because my heavenly parents knew and they accepted my offering. And that just brought me just so much peace. I was able to go forward. I love that. And I, I do think, well, a couple of comments is I think our culture, I don't think it's our doctrine. Our culture is sort of created. We never turned down a calling. <laughs> and I think it's fine to, to, as the calling's being extended for us to share more of the situation and invite the person extending the calling. Sometimes we'll just say no. Sometimes we'll say yes. But sometimes we can say, you know, before I say yes or no, I'd like to consider more about our family situation, my situation. Um, and maybe you can just see how you feel about that um, as part of just getting good revelation about the right thing. I've always invited, I always, when I extended callings, often would try to understand more about the situation before extending the calling because it just helped me make a better decision as I worked with Heavenly Parents. And then the other thing I like about that segment is, you know, sometimes I hear, I don't know if this relates, but sometimes I hear where someone says, I really had an important decision, so I sought out a high church leader to give me the answer. And I kind of, you know, whether that's a bishop, stake president, or sometimes you hear these talks where I found a member of the Quorum of the Twelve or a general authority. And I, I want to be careful here because I don't want to infer that that's not a good thing. And those wise priesthood leaders, men or women, sometimes it'd be a, a woman with a lot of experience, may have helpful insight. But I've always thought the best revelation comes like your teaching from, from our heavenly parents. And I think all of those people we go to can give us, you know, a better framework to making a decision. But even as a YSA bishop, I was nervous about telling someone what to do. I mostly just wanted to lay down principles for them to make a better decision versus say what you should do. So I like what you're teaching there. And sometimes I just, I think that's the most important relationship we can have is with our heavenly parents because they know what's best for us. Oh, absolutely. There was just one other thought I, I just had about um, serving in our wards. So, and this, one of my online friends who has a special needs child made this comment online that she had kind of gotten some feedback that she wasn't serving enough. And when she explained, these are the challenges I'm having to do with my child, um, they, I guess somebody said, well, you need to be asking for more help so that then you can serve more. Mm. And as I, as I heard that, I thought, are we, do we not appreciate that she is serving her child all the time and he, and her child needs a lot and she is administering charity to the least of these among us. And I think that it's good to recognize that we, we like to say service begins at home, but do we, do we really appreciate that? And I hope that we do because sometimes people have really big family challenges that require a lot of them. And just because they're not able to hold a 
major calling in the ward or at the stake level at the time doesn't mean that they are not faithful and that they're not serving. And that's been one of the biggest gifts I've seen from Jack is that he has offered us endless opportunities to serve him. And that has just helped us to grow. It's helped us to know our Savior. I always think back of the um, scripture from the Gospel of John, where the people are asking about the blind man, you know, who hath sinned, this man or his parents? And the answer is, neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. That there's no sin. It's not that there's somebody did something wrong and that, and that they're less than because there's a disability and it requires more work. It's simply God manifesting himself in all the variety of the human family. And what a beautiful thing that is. I love that. Um, I love, you know, it reminds me culturally, men do this more than women. We measure our progress by our church calling um, versus developing Christ-like attributes sometimes. And sometimes we look at each other and sort of measure their degree of service by, I call it their LDS tools calling. <laughs> and if you've got a big LDS tools calling, that's great. And we don't, I don't want to do anything to diminish that because that's, it can be an incredibly intense calling and you need all of our love and support, but that may not be the way heavenly father wants everybody to serve. And we should not sort of measures people's um, degree of service or, or even infer increased righteousness or decreased righteousness by the type of official church calling they have, um, because there's a lot of people serving in ways that none of us fully understand. And it may be easier for us to understand some of those LDS tools calling, so we just have more perspective of the hours required. And some of that may be more public service where we see what is being done. And so I like what you're teaching there is we just need to, everybody's doing their best and there's lots of different ways to serve and we shouldn't rank. And we certainly shouldn't say that you should, you know, serve differently than you are right now by what you shared at first. Other thoughts on this section, uh, Megan, about spiritual gifts? I, I want you to talk about your oldest son, Henry, at some point. He's graduating from high school, he's headed on a mission. So I'm thinking of Henry. He's got three younger brothers that have got some development needs, and that's a really unique road for a, you know, a high school senior that has this very unusual perspective. Talk about Henry and some of the gifts he has. Okay, I'm going to share. Or you one can go anywhere example. you want to yes. before we get there. No, it's perfect. I've got one story, and then I'll lead into okay. Henry. So. Um, A couple of years ago, I had this experience early one morning. It was a summer morning and I woke up really early and my husband was just getting back from somewhere. And he said, well, I, I I said, where have you been? And he said, I, I did my good deed for the day. He fixes MRIs. He's an engineer. So he said he'd gotten a... We like working MRIs. (laughs) Yes, we do. Way to go. (laughs) He, he had gotten a page that said that, um, one of the children's hospitals MRIs was down the the location near our house. And, and there was a little three-year-old girl who was already sedated waiting for her MRI. And he said, I, he said, I wasn't on call. I could have said no. And they could have just not done the procedure. But he said, I, I just knew how mad I would feel if we had gone through fasting and sedation with our, with Jack, and then have to just repeat the whole procedure again. So he said, so I went 
So he went and he got the MRI up and running and the little girl was still sedated and had her procedure and nobody was the wiser. And I, I said to him, wow, that little girl's parents have no idea what transpired today to make their daughter's MRI possible. And the second I said that, it was like a, the spirit was like a lightning bolt in my chest and said, you have no idea what has transpired in your life to make everything possible, what we have done for you. And I was just blown away by the sense that my heavenly parents love me and everything that has ever transpired that's good has come from my savior. He's made that happen. It was this really powerful moment for me that even when things are hard, when we can't see very far ahead of us, they know and they care. So anyway, back to Henry. Henry is a gift in my life. He's my oldest son. I say that he prepared us for the three brothers with autism because he had true colic as an infant and screamed for the first four months of his life. Like, literally never stopped screaming. And anyway, we love him so much, even though it was a rough start. Uh, as a preschooler, he preferred to be called Mr. Horse. <laughs> he grew up, he's this tall, uh, strawberry blonde, handsome guy. He played on the varsity basketball team for his high school this last year and has loved basketball. But really, there's so much more to Henry than all of those outward things. He came to earth with spiritual gifts and, and he has compassion and empathy for people who aren't the same as him. And he understood that at a very young age, even when Jack was tiny, Henry would just reach over in the bath and shampoo his hair. He would just wash his brother's hair because he knew Jack couldn't do it. And he'd buckle his seatbelt in the car and lift him out of his booster seat at the table. He just knew this was his brother and he took care of him and he's grown that way in and honestly, I think a lot of his generation is like this. They don't bat an eyelash at differences. They accept people for who they are. And I think they're a really amazing generation that way. They came with these gifts of just loving people for who they are. And Henry's always been able to do that. Um, I think he's faced a lot of challenges in having these brothers that have kind of taken a lot of our time and energy. It was hard to, he didn't, he didn't want to have friends over a lot of times because his brothers were, you know, embarrassing and like, I don't blame him. You know, it's, it's just life at our house was, I joke that like our house was like an orphanage for many years. It just looked like, <laughs> it looked like something from Annie. It was just a place where we were living and it was taking a real beating every day. And and I just applaud Henry for being a good, kind, compassionate person and for being able to see past the outward appearance and what people can and can't do and just seeing them as a person and treating them that way. He has a great faith. He also has the spiritual gift of faith. Yeah, I would guess wherever Henry's assigned and the companions he has and the people he teach that he, the lessons he's learned in your family will help him as a missionary, help him as a husband and a father with his own children. But I also kind of think, and I know you know this, so I'll just share it with our listeners, as I've, as I've thought about some of these situations, sometimes I think we think, well, Henry's better off because he has 
these brothers. And so, but I don't think these brothers exist just to make Henry a better person. Um, I think we all exist to help each other equally. So I don't think Heavenly Father sent these three younger sons just to bring Christ-like attributes into Henry's life so he could be a better missionary. comes back to your dream about Jack and this huge sailboat he is. He's not a little sailboat, just trying to make everybody else's sailboats better. He within himself is a big sailboat and has a beautiful, unique life mission that's equal to Henry's. And so I don't, even though we might, I might look at them differently in our mortal eyes and look at their life missions differently. And some, maybe your three younger sons muted to compared to Henry. I don't believe that's true. And so I just think that's just a thought as I'm thinking about that. Um, any more thoughts on spiritual gifts that have come into your lives, your children's lives, before we move on to this last segment about what we can do to better serve families like yours. No, let's move on. That's good. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So what can we do to better serve? Well, I think if we're and thinking... And support and help and all yeah, those words. If we're thinking broadly about disabilities, I guess the first point would be people with disabilities are all different. They're not going to be all the same. Even people on the autism spectrum, they're not all the same. It's a spectrum for a reason. And we have to just understand that they're all different and there's a person at the core. And I think my biggest learning experience has been that the spirit is not disabled. They are whole and able as a spirit. And they're just a child of God as well, just like you or I. Um, let's see, I'm trying to think where to go next. One thing that I, and I want to do this carefully, but one thing that I saw with a lot of my friends who are raising children with disabilities is we've had this kind of, we've all had this kind of painful experience at one time or another where we've seen someone in our ward or community who will, their child will get like a cancer diagnosis or need a major surgery or something. And suddenly like the whole ward rallies around them in a really big way, which is beautiful because that's compassionate service and we should do that. That's what Jesus would do. But there's also kind of this <laughs> recognition that we are always in crisis and, and there's not kind of that same rush to help in the same kind of way. And I've grappled with why that is and what that means or how it could be different. And I, I don't think it's because people don't want to help. I think people do. They want to help. Probably at my lowest times, I often felt people don't want to step in because we are too difficult. We have too many needs. Our needs are ongoing. Ongoing versus it's a, too much. Yeah, as versus a broken like, leg or a, right something that will pass. Um, and one thing I realized as I've thought about this is that I did have people who reached out to me in smaller ways. I didn't. You know, we didn't see these big, like a whole community, like rallying or something, which is great. I'm really grateful that those families have that support. But 
I did recognize that I had a next door neighbor who I could tell everything to, and she didn't judge me. She just listened. And, and another neighbor who would say, let me, um, send Jack over. I'll get my vacuum out. He can just play with it for an hour and, and keep him happy. And, and they didn't try to fix it or minimize it. And, um, Anyway, they were there in these smaller ways. And so I saw that my heavenly parents did provide that for me. They did provide people, but it was kind of on this smaller scale. And it kind of made me think of ministering because that's what ministering really is. It's like, it's just one-on-one and it's not like a checklist. It's just you trying to understand this other person. And maybe, maybe what they need is a, a dinner or a plate of brownies, but maybe what they need is just to be heard and to feel understood. Maybe it's, they need you to let their son come over and play with your vacuum for an hour so they can get some errand done. Whatever it is, it's just understanding them and asking what it is that they need. I always did feel like we were outliers. We were so beyond everybody else's experiences. And I often said to people, close to me. I don't need meals. I don't need someone to bring me dinner. I have, I have that, I have the capacity to do that. I just need to be understood. I need people to know what I can and can't do, what I can offer as far as service. And I just need them to understand that we're doing our best. That's that's it. We just want to come to church and do our best and follow Jesus. And sometimes it looks like a big mess. And, you know, I had, the spirit did witness to me that even though it was a real struggle for us for years at church, I did have understanding. People tried to understand for the most part, and they met us in our extremity and just accepted that that's where we were and we were doing our best. And, And I'm really grateful for that. So I guess if I were to say, how do you serve someone whose family has disabilities? Well, I'd probably start with asking, (laughs) like, don't ask the ward council, don't ask their next door neighbor, just, just ask them, just ask them what they could use. And to kind of, like I mentioned before, like when people would call Jack by name at church, even though he couldn't respond to them, you know, just treating people as, as humans, just treating them as another person, um, seeking to understand and not minimizing the pain and and struggle. Sometimes people would say, oh, but you're handling it so well, which they meant as a compliment. But I really hated it because it was like, yeah, but we're still barely surviving every day. It doesn't matter what we look like from the outside. It's still a struggle. Um, I did have some people who offered really small acts of service that meant a lot to me. So I think that tiny kindnesses and that's like a hashtag, you know, on, on Twitter, which I love, they can go a long way. So a couple of examples, I had a a neighbor who was in her seventies and she, she approached me and said, will you let me weed your flower beds? She said, and she wasn't saying that my yard looked bad. She said, although it did need to be weeded. <laughs> she said, your yard always looks good, but this is something I can do. And then you have to do one less thing. And so once a week or every other week in the summer, and she did this for a few years, she came over and 
just knelt in my garden and weeded my flower beds. And I was so grateful for her. And you let her do it. I did. And, and I'm still grateful for that service that she gave me. Um, my grandma Wilcox was homebound for many years before her death. And she called the temple every two weeks and put Jack's name on the prayer roll. And it was something she could do. And it meant so much to me that she was thinking of us. I just, I loved that, that there was a lot of love behind that. Um, I also had, I'll share a couple of other just examples that always make me weep. Um, when we had decided Jack needed to go into a group home, I called the school to talk to his teacher. I needed, I don't know, I think I needed some of his records transferred or something. And, and I said to her, we're getting ready to place Jack in a group home. And I started talking about it and she said, let me stop you right there. And she said, whatever anyone tells you, you are doing the right thing for Jack because you love him. So wow. don't listen to any naysayers. And that was such a gift for wow. me. She knew Jack really well. She knew how he could be very aggressive and, but yet she loved him. And I appreciated that. Um, as we were getting ready to place him and a lot of people didn't know about it yet, I was playing prelude music one day in Relief Society at the piano and my neighbor kind of like walked over quietly and kind of like slid next to me onto the piano bench. And, and she leaned over and said, I know, I know about Jack. I think she'd heard about it. I don't know, ward council or something. And I started to weep. And she said, that sounds really hard. And that was, that moment was really exactly what I needed to hear. I didn't need to hear, are you sure? Or is he going to be safe? Or why are you doing that? She simply said exactly what I was feeling. That sounds really hard. And it was. And I, like I just, no there's no judgment. In no. That and I just, I felt love at that moment. One last story. Um, the day that we placed Jack remains to this date, the hardest day of my life. And we came home and we were, my husband and I were both just really sad and, um, weepy. And, um, I, there was a knock at the door and I thought, oh, I have red eyes. I'm, I don't want to talk to anybody. And I opened the door and it was my neighbor, Kim, and she didn't even say anything. Like we just looked at each other and we just stood there and cried together. And she did bring, she did hand me some flowers and I think some chocolate. And I felt love. She, she couldn't offer any words that comforted. She just simply showed up and wept with me, which is like the whole, that's what we're called to do is as disciples is just mourn with those that mourn. And to this day, that, that moment is such a gift to me. So I think showing up just and not expecting anything in return, like we don't have to comfort other people. We, they're just there to understand us. Um, after Jack left, sometimes people would like make comments about, oh, he's doing so great. Everything's great now. Almost like a happily ever after. And to me, that was a little bit of a minimizing comment. It was 
better to recognize that it was actually painful that he didn't live with us as just a young 13-year-old. Um, but I appreciated that people, even people I didn't know very well would see me and would say, how's Jack? They would just ask how he's doing, that they hadn't forgotten about him either. Um, okay, so I think I guess I just want to go back to... Jesus for a minute, if that's okay. It's a great spot. So the way that we have come through all of this, the years when everybody was little and we were just in survival mode to the years of having to send Jack off to live this other life and then beyond is, is through the Savior. So I used to hate it when people would make that comment about, um, which we like to do culturally in the church to say, well, you just need to use the atonement more, you know, just use the atonement. <laughs> it's like, what does that mean? And one day I was in Relief Society and someone was giving a lesson on, I don't even know what they were talking about, but there was a picture of horses that were pulling a wagon. And I was just watching, I, I was just watching that yoke that was over the top of the horses. And I just kept thinking of my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I recognize that when we are yoked with the Savior, nothing's impossible. Nothing's impossible to him. He's our strength. And to me, that's been the saving grace. That's how we've been able to go forward. Um, another word that came to mind one time, I didn't even know what this word meant, was ballast. just kept coming to mind. So I looked it up. And a ballast is something that is a stabilizing force, like in a boat, or you can even have them like on a hot air balloon. And I recognized that the spirit was teaching me that that's the role of our savior. He will support us and stabilize us and give us strength to move forward. And that, that's, I've just seen it in my family. That's just how it's been through our challenges. Um, I guess the last thing that I keep thinking about going back to spiritual gifts is that our prophet has been talking about them and he actually spoke about them directly to just the women of the church. And this, this is what he said at that. I don't remember if it was last conference. He said, my dear sisters, you have special spiritual gifts and propensities. I urge you with all the hope of my heart to pray, to understand your spiritual gifts to cultivate, use, and expand them even more than you ever have. And then from Doctrine and Covenants, it says, all these gifts come from God for the benefit of the children of God. I just think that he's helping us to wake up and recognize that these are the last days. It's not just business as usual. And we have the gifts inside of us to know our heavenly parents better and to know our Savior but we have to seek them. We have to ask for them. Love that. Other things you'd like to share with us, Megan? Well, I guess maybe just the last thing is that we can't take away each other's burdens. We can't fix things for each other. Only our savior can save us. Um, when things were really hard, people would often send me like 
Facebook messages or, or texts, and they would always reference Mosiah 2414. It's almost like if you looked up that scripture in the Book of Mormon, it was like there would be a picture of my family there. And they would say, it says, and I will also ease the burdens which are put upon your shoulders that even you cannot feel them upon your backs, even while you were in bondage. And I was like, yes, I know. We, thank you. We're like the poster family for struggles. But it was true. Like he was easing our burdens and enabling us to carry that load. And then if you look at the rest of that scripture, it says, and this will I do that ye may stand as witnesses for me hereafter, that ye may know of a surety that I, the Lord God, do visit my people in their afflictions. And that's been the beautiful realization for me. I once had somebody ask me, like, do you ever feel angry that you don't have like the typical family experience? Great question. And I think at one point in my life, I, I could say, yes, I was angry about it. And that's honest. I don't, I honestly don't feel that way now. And it's because if we didn't have these particular struggles, I would not know Jesus Christ and what he does for us every day, the way that I do. And so I'm, I'm just grateful. I'm, I'm just grateful for and indebted to him. And I, you know, I write this blog and it's yeah, tell really... Tell listeners how to get to your blog. Oh, well, it's, okay, so it's twooursurvival.com, T-O-O-U-R, survival.com. And it used to just be the story of like poop and vacuums and will we survive the day? And it was, <laughs> it was, it was therapeutic at that point. And it's become something different that's it at times a burden, a struggle for me because it is where I feel like I'm called to just share my testimony of how Jesus Christ helped us through those afflictions because he did, he did, he saved us. And writing about Jesus is not as easy as, you know, writing about just whatever happened that day, but I'm grateful to him. And so even though I kind of have some inner turmoil about doing it, I I still do it. Sometimes I'm grumpy about it. <laughs> uh, this is a great podcast. I don't want it to end in some ways. Um, I'm so glad you reached out, Megan. It's We've never done a podcast with this kind of a story, but our podcast, as you know, is called Listen, Learn, and Love. And we can all love, loves this broad word of supporting families like yours and other LDS families because we listen and learn and understand how we can help. And you've given so many wonderful examples of neighbors that have done wonderful things um, that I could go back and recap, but I think I'll just let our listeners um, sit with what you've taught us. I love the role of a savior. I love the role of neighbors to help you and the things they said. I'm aware that sometimes I can say things like, to repeat something you said, you were handling it so well to me, that's a platitude where I'm not wanting to engage in the difficulty of your situation by saying that. It keeps me emotionally safe, um, and it doesn't really help. Um, it's probably better than not having a conversation with you at all. So I recognize that person may be doing the best they can. But some of those examples, like the woman that sat next to you on the chair, Relief Society, and said, that sounds really hard. That's not a platitude. Um, the woman you talked about says, I just want to understand. I want to listen to what you feel. 
So that's, I'm not going to keep myself emotionally safe. I'm going to open up to you, let you open up to me, and I want to understand that how you feel. And I recognize sitting with people in their pain heals people and gives people hope. So thank you, Megan Goats, for being on the podcast. These few wonderful husband you've referenced, Henry, Jack, Charlie, and Truman. And I just love how you elevated all of them equally. We didn't talk too much about Charlie and Truman, your two youngest, but I just love that big sailboat that you keep seeing, which is how you feel about Jack and how our Heavenly Father feels about Jack. And and you talked at the end of the podcast about all of this is a blessing because it connects me with the Savior. And that's and I think that's what you said that Jack wanted to do in the pre-mortal life. And so I think you give tribute to Jack. Maybe some way Jack hears this podcast someday or or just knows your heart and knows that the greatest satisfaction he's going to have when he understands what he's done for this family. And so to me, he's the tulips. He's the light. He's good. And, and, he's, and I love the way he chose this life um, because of his desire for his eternal family. Thanks, Richard. So please check out um, Megan's blog, uh, T-O-O-U-R-2-R-Survival.com. If I said that right, um, so you can continue to follow Megan's story. And thank you, Megan Goats, for being on an episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Mm-hmm.